anything that reveals truth, I think, is something that is so, um, there's like an awe that people have about it that people want to worship it. Worship it. Yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. But it's not inherently satanic, nor is it inherently biblical, I would say, either. Whatever you come to the anagram with, you can then use the anagram for, you know? So it's like, it really isn't up to us uh, to determine how you're going to use the anagram. Hey guys, welcome back to Not My Type. This is Jack. This is Malia. And today we are discussing some of the questions that we got on our Q&A from about a month ago. Yeah, you've been waiting a long time. You truly have. Thanks for being a trooper. <laughs> we have been in quarantine. We've been out of quarantine. We have been just we're safe though. We're stumbling, all good. stumbling through our lives, but we're finally recording this uh, and answering some of the questions you guys asked. So yeah, the first question, I guess we can just jump right into it, is what is the history of the Enneagram? We've gotten a lot of juicy questions about this. And this was like, honestly, probably the most common question. Um, and I think it's such a it's such a complex thing to talk about and really interesting. Basically, I don't have time to tell you all of the nuance <laughs> of the history of the Enneagram. You can look it up yourself if you want to. But what I will tell you is that... Um, it's an ancient concept that is constructed around um, kind of the merging of ideas from Eastern religion, Western religion, a lot of different uh, traditions in general that are kind of slammed all at once into one place. And I can see why that's like disconcerting for people because it doesn't have like one root that can be like, I can trace this all the way back. But I think it says something about the Enneagram that it is a combination of a lot of history, a lot of traditions. Because I feel like it's more true. It it, it has a, a more truth to it because you can see it across all kinds of different spans of humanity. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you think about it that way, um, the guy who sort of crafted what we look at as the, the actual diagram with nine points on it, uh, his name was Gurdjieff, and he was... What a name. I know, Gurdjieff. <laughs> it, it's like... Name my third child, Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff, um, and so Gurdjieff was this guy who lived along the Silk Road like way back when. I think it's like the 1800s um, or like early 1900s is when when he d designed this diagram. So there were concepts that had been existing, but he was the one who kind of like mapped it out. Mm. Um, and living along the Silk Road, there were lots of different traditions like coming to and fro. So there, there were a lot of different ideas in his head. Um, and he felt like there was something organic, something existing that he just was trying to express as best as he could. Uh, Gurdjieff was also this really weird guy who just like loved to teach it, um, teach the Enneagram in a way that would confuse people sometimes. I think that was mm. something he liked to do. He did a lot of like funky dancing and like <laughs> breath work. And so he, d he was just, a, he was a, uni a unique individual. We'll put it that way. Um, but basically he, he developed this idea and it what back then it had nothing to do with, um, personality even. It was just designed as something, um, mm. that represented, uh, a universal law that there was, these nine different points that all represent diff different aspects of life and living and reality. Uh, it was later on through different people like Echazo and Naranjo who looked at this concept and was sort of like, oh, this applies to people. And mm. so they started just like tossing oh, it out interesting. there. It is interesting. Um, yeah. B basically, here's what I would say about the Enneagram. There is a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of different content you can learn about. There are a ton of different people who have things to say about it. But it's no one's intellectual property. The Enneagram mm -hmm. is a concept. It's it's an idea. And it's still unfolding and expanding as people teach on it. Um, 
and relate to it and think about it, but it's not like someone patented the Enneagram. It's mm. not like someone said, this is mine and you need to think of it the way I think of it. Uh, so when people ask about origins of the Enneagram, it's often because they, f- they are bothered by this amalgam answer. The fact that there were different people and their ideas were slammed together and now we have what we call the Enneagram of personality. Um, but if I'm being honest, uh, I don't really care <laughs> because I think, it, I think it is interesting to talk about sources. You can, and we reference some sources in our podcast, but um, if you want to do research on that, go for it. But what we're here to talk about is the way it's real and the way it applies. Mm-hmm. And so when people are like um, basically asking for reasons why I should trust it, you know, reasons why I should yeah. trust that its information is relevant, um, I think the answer is not in its roots but rather in its present day manifestation. You know, yeah. like if you look at reality and see that, like, honestly, I think Gurdjieff did a lot of weird things. I wouldn't teach the Enneagram <laughs> the dancing the way is maybe fourth on the list. <laughs> but <laughs> I think, um, I think it's important to realize that, that he was right to some degree about the idea that the Enneagram, these nine different points of reality manifest all throughout the world. You know, it's mm. not just people, but there are, there are, all sorts of ways you can see like cultures manifesting different points of the Enneagram ideas that you just, you can look at a book even or watch a movie and be like, wow, that radiates um, the fifth point on the Enneagram or the third, you know, there are different aspects of reality that reflect these points on the Enneagram. So um, to respond to the history thing, I gave you a pretty vague synopsis, but um, ultimately it was thrown together by a whole bunch of different people and no one was in charge of it. There was no one team. It was an idea that someone sort of, worked with and toyed with and others were like, Hey, I want to, I want to take that somewhere. So that's why you get a lot of conflicting information. And again, like that's like, we are not the ones who have the ability to say like, this is exactly what you should be learning or shouldn't be learning because Mm. ultimately like it's no one's intellectual property. Malia and I do not own the Enneagram. And it's, it's also like continuing to evolve. I think that's part of it. It's not that it's was patented and then it's, it's over. Like, I mean, you just look back and you say like, this is for sure what it is, but it's continually evolving because as more people are seeing it in their lives and seeing it play out in their relationships, there's more ideas, there's more intricacies, Mm, like there's more connections between, like, I mean, we throw out words like harmonics and the triads and whatever, but like, those are, those are evidence of the thought about the Enneagram continuing to evolve and change. And the craziness that is that like, Gurdjieff was not the guy who came up with the theory of harmonics or stances or object relations. Like he didn't construct any of those things. People saw the Enneagram and saw it as a symbol and found the patterns. And the Mm. crazy part is that like a lot of them are symmetrical. Like look at object relations, you know, those triangles match up perfectly. It's it's weird. I don't understand. I don't understand. It's, it's very funky, but I think it suggests to us that it, that in some ways it's real, you know, even if it's structure is Mm. flawed, even if the way it's mapped out is flawed, the, the symmetry, like it's a diagram for a reason. And and even, I think, honestly, there are even intricacies to be learned from the visual appearance of the Enneagram. It's um, a circle, not a line, things yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. And even even more so, like something as nuanced as looking at the lines of movement. I was reading an article mm. a couple months ago where someone was talking about how if you look at the Enneagram and the lines of movement to growth and stress, um, the types with the most acute angle, the sharpest separation um, from the, their growth and stress types are four and five. And if you think about four and five, they're the most separated and the most distinct um, from the other types. And, and it's just like a tiny example that even the lines of movement on the Enneagram reveal nuance 
about the types, you know? And wow. then And then in the, likewise, to compare it, two and seven are the ones with the most obtuse and widest angles. Mm. And you think about the way they engage with reality. And you can, you can naturally see there's an openness to both of them um, in contrast to, like, the narrowed nature of four and five. But, yeah, anyways, we're kind of getting off topic. But my point is I think that there's – I think it's psycho-spiritual content for a reason. There's something going on here that isn't just, like, psychological um, – or conceptual or like, oh, you need the hard science to, to back it up. Like, if you would like some research on it, you're in the wrong podcast. I'm sorry to say. Like, this is mm. this is not something. We do reference sources, but it's it's not our prerogative, I guess. Yeah, and people say that they've researched stuff. But remember, like, the Enneagram, we talk about motivation. We yeah. Behavior is involved in that, of course. And I think it's true that everyone has a type that that is observable to some degree. But because it deals with intrinsic things and it's meant to help um, – individuals and relationships you can't prove it or not prove it you know like mm. if someone is convinced they're an eight and they're actually a seven it's like you can't convince them otherwise necessarily um they may actually be a seven and that may be an objectively true fact um but you can't test that you know you can take a test but that's yeah. not going to tell you anything that can be really frustrating for a lot of people yeah that's so true and it's also frustrating to be presented with things and there's not there's not something testable, but there's not something to prove. And I think what I'd like to say is that we're not, we're not asking you to sell your soul to the, to the Enneagram. You know, it's like you can take what's helpful and leave what's, what's not helpful and kind of determine uh, on your own terms what is relatable. But we're not saying like, this is the ultimate truth. You have to sell your soul and, mm. and believe in this full heartedly. It's not a religion. It's not, uh, you know, something like that. Um, I guess you could make it one, but I mean, <laughs> I'm sure people have tried. Oh, yeah. for sure. Um, which is actually one of our later questions. <laughs> um, but yeah, actually let's, let's go ahead and talk about that. Like, well, a lot of people asked us, um, is the Enneagram satanic? And, and that's like, really interesting question because like we were were saying anything that reveals truth i think is something that is so um there's like an awe that people have about it that people want to worship it worship it yeah, yeah for yeah. sure but it's not inherently satanic nor is it inherently biblical i would say either or yeah like it doesn't really subscribe to any one religious concept i would say i think a lot of people think that it's satanic because of the symbol of the Enneagram, the fact that it has like literal lines and <laughs> yeah. it looks like a star. They're it like, totally looks like one pentagram. of those, like, yes, like one of those, uh, when you see like children witches. in the attic, like drawing yeah, yeah. stars to like summon the demons. <laughs> exactly. No. And I, I think that's so entertaining. Um, not the, not the witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. I'm not but... like, I'm not thrilled about that for a little, for a little bit of context for anyone who doesn't know us personally. Um, Molly and I are both Christians, so we have a Christian background for the Enneagram. I think, um, evangelical Christians in the United States by and large have the greatest misunderstanding of the yeah. Enneagram. So that's kind of why we're here because mm -hmm. there are a lot of people we know who um, might be a little confused. <laughs> but um, And on but, the flip side, you don't have to be a Christian for the Enneagram to at all by any yeah, means to, no. be, to be relevant to you. But yeah, go ahead. And I, honestly, I think it can change anyone's life like regardless of whether or not it, it, it let, let's pretend it were satanic you know like let's say let's say sure it's satanic <laughs> all of the christian moms listening are like <gasps> i know <laughs> but think about the fact that like you can still gain something from it you mm. can still learn like 
I think people are terrified that like if it's satanic, it's like imbued with the devil. Like learning yeah, about it makes yeah. me like possessed. And it's like okay, right, right, right. Baby darling, chickadee. <laughs> There's something you're not understanding here. Mm. Um, so yeah, let's pretend it were satanic. It doesn't really matter. I what I would say is that like it either works and it either does something. It's mm-hmm. either real or it's not. You know, and I think if it were not real, people wouldn't be listening to this podcast right now. Yeah. You know, so. That's what I would say to the satanic thing. Um, it's also not, I think people are bothered that by the symbol, again, that it looks yeah. it looks satanic and witchcrafty. Um, <laughs> and no offense to any witches listening. Like, we're, we're not here to discuss that. Um, but what we will say is that ultimately, I don't think it's really associated with any one craft or trade or tradition. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think to your point and to us even being in this podcast, like, whatever you come to the anagram with, you can then use the anagram for, you know? So it's like, it really isn't up to us uh, to determine how you're going to use the anagram. Like, we're just here presenting the truths that we've realized and, and pieces of sources that we um, have seen be relevant, but it's really up to you. I mean, like, we're not forcing biblical practices or satanic practices on any of our listeners. It's like, it's up to you guys to take what we say or what anyone says about the Enneagram and kind of um, use it on your terms, I guess. So it's satanic or biblical if you want it to, I guess is the point. (laughs) Yeah. Like remember, listener, you are living your life, you know, and Malia and I are living our lives. And there are things like we were even talking the other day, just like considering the fact like it's so easy to speak with certainty, especially when you're someone who's overconfident like me, Um, (laughs) but just like to speak with certainty about things. But like there, there's so much we don't know. You know, like yeah. we are we are unfolding the Enneagram as we learn about it and read about it and study it and do our research and talk with each other and talk with people. And we were even considering uh, the other day, like, what if we've mistyped Malia, you know, or what Ugh, if, what yeah. if we've mistyped so and so, whatever. Like we were just thinking about, like, what happens then? Like mm. you can get your ego involved or you can realize, like, maybe it's actually helpful to reconsider and consider yeah. my options. So I'm just saying, like, I think it's so important to remember that, like. You can do whatever you want with it. Like, yeah. if you want a watered-down version of the Enneagram that is just memes, like, and, like, little, like, what type of coffee are you? Like, your plant based on your Enneagram. <laughs> like, do whatever you want. Like, we're, we're just here to do what we think is most valuable. Mm. We're here to teach the Enneagram in the way that we believe is most helpful and practical and life-changing. And as Christians, too, like, we think it's most relevant to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we proclaim and profess. Mm. Um, and we've honestly, like... For a lot of maybe skeptical Christians who are listening to this, um, we have really seen it be used by God, like speaking to us and being like actually revealing things about our heart and about who we are and, and about each other through the Enneagram. And so um, maybe it's not rooted in the most holy of holies, <laughs> but we've seen it be honoring. And I, and I think that that's uh, the biggest, uh, if you want to be convinced, you know, like that's the biggest evidence that I have to the, yeah. the power of the Enneagram. And I think it's like, again, like if you are listening, I, the way I always compare it is like, think about a Christmas tree, you know, a Christmas tree is rooted in pagan tradition. And there are some Christians who are bothered by that. Hmm. And a ton that. of Christians that are like still putting up their Christmas tree every year, you know, my family included. I'm just saying, you can take the roots of something and even if it's like detestable Mm. or like frightening or I don't know, whatever you want to say about it. Like I think something created in, in wickedness or evil or whatever you want to call it, like can still be made into something good. 
that's that's just kind of the way yeah. I see the world, you know. So and maybe like, that's just my worldview. A lot of people who don't know that where the Christmas tree comes from still put it up every year and it like brings a lot of joy and <laughs> smells great. <laughs> Me four seconds ago. But like he was like, I had no idea. <laughs> but if you never know, I mean like imagine never knowing that you know, yeah. the Enneagram was rooted in anything other than uh, what you believe, you know, like, so I, I think it's just a really humbling experience to, to be like, okay, I'm taking it at face value, take what's helpful, leave what's not helpful. And that's really up to you, not us. Yeah. And if you feel like our podcast is like unhelpful for your life, don't listen. Like, oh, yeah. do, your, do your own thing. Like we cannot not dictate bothered. <laughs> and nor do we feel the need to dictate what you're doing. Yeah. Like we are just teaching what we think is valuable and just talking about things that are fun and mm. like seem relevant to life yeah. and impactful for life. So let's move on to the next question, which is, uh, and I, I wrote this incorrectly. It's how is the Enneagram contribute to your life? <laughs> <laughs> what kind of question is so that? So how that's, does, how can maybe the Enneagram contribute to your life? That's such a vague question. It is. Why don't you run with it? Do something with it. Um, well, I think we just spoke on it a little bit of like, the, the Enneagram can contribute to your life in whatever way uh, it reveals things that you don't see. I think that that's yeah, what's that's helpful good. for me is that I mean, we were just talking about the instincts and how much, I mean, the instincts isn't even like a, a primal idea about the Enneagram. Yeah, like someone slapped that in. You exactly. know, someone's like, oh, Naranjo is like, oh, this is like connected. But and it's so relevant. And it's like, especially for your blind instinct, uh, it has revealed so much to me and has been like so fruitful to to learn about of like things that I wouldn't even consider being a part of life and and being like maybe I should consider that being a part of life and like how do I how do I reconcile with the things I don't see and uh, especially your neurosis is like completely blind in your life and and the enneagram shows you in your life oh this is what you're doing here this is what you're doing here you know it's like and then it's cyclical that it happens yeah. over and over yeah. and over. And that's why you're blind to it. Because you think it's normal life. Mm. You think it's like, this is the way things are supposed to be. And I guess right. that's the point. Like, exactly like you're saying, our goal is to is to see clearer, right? I mean, right. that's ultimately, our hope is, like, our goal is to see clearer. And you can't make the Enneagram, like, the Enneagram is not God. I, I, I mean, other people might disagree with that. I would personally say the Enneagram <laughs> is not God. Yeah. Um, the Enneagram is not going to fix your life. Right. Um, it's a tool that I like to think of as like glasses, you know, like, mm. can it help sharpen your vision? If it doesn't like don't wear glasses, you know, like if you feel like you don't need glasses, first of all, I would argue you're wrong in this, <laughs> in this metaphor, but like, um, I think it's so helpful and so important. So like, how can it contribute to your life? Like relationships, I would oh, say yeah. is, is a key part of it. Like I think about my relationships to my family, my relationships to my, myself, my friends, um, my relationship to God, just all sorts of different connections. Um, they're improved and they're sharpened and they're they're healed by this knowledge. Like mm. maybe not by the knowledge, but by the use of the knowledge. Like yeah. the wisdom of the Enneagram is something you hear a lot because it wisdom is something practical. You know, it takes knowledge and makes it valuable and makes it useful for good. Yeah, and I think we've touched on this before, but we live, like you said, in that cycle. But we think that cycle is normal. We're We're like, oh, we're living in just normal everyday life and the Enneagram is like a set, um, kind of like a set group of checks and balances mm. for you to go through and be like, oh, I didn't, I would not have even considered this if it wasn't like put out in front of me, right? Like That's I wouldn't so ever true. be like, oh, I wonder if I'm prideful, like on a Monday, you know? <laughs> it's like, but the Enneagram like kind of gives you like this this list of checks and balances that you can go yeah. through and be like, you know, 
wow, I'm having, I'm struggling with this friend or I'm struggling with myself or in life or with, with, with this or whatever. And it kind of gives you, um, a way to, to realize maybe what's behind that. Well, it's a map, you know, like think about like <sighs> a map. That's what the, I was looking for. Even the diagram. It's a map. Yeah. So you can not necessarily place everything perfectly. Like, and that's why people get so upset about the Enneagram when they first learn about it. It's like, you can't shove me in a box. And you're right. Like, yeah. the oh, Enneagram sure. can't map all of reality, mm-hmm. but it can map a lot of it. Um, and I think those conflicts with the self, with others, like what you're talking about, like the spaces where life is challenging, I think this kind of knowledge can be really helpful. That's all I'll say about it, you know? And I like that idea of a map a lot. And my brain is already like racing with the, with metaphors, but it's not so much that you are like trying to get to a destination and you need the map to get there. Like you could probably wander around and, and, and get wherever you're going. But I think the difference is without the Enneagram, without the map, we don't realize what's out there. Hmm. And we will like settle in a village or a town or whatever and being like, this is the best I can do. And we'll sit down and we'll, and we'll have a house and we'll, you know, whatever you do with your life. Um, but when you have a map, suddenly there's like, all of these places you didn't know existed that you could go to and you actually have like an avenue, you have a path that you see that you can get there. Um, and you know, your life wouldn't be necessarily better off or worse off because you just wouldn't know. But the Enneagram provides a map if you want it to know about other avenues, to know about, to learn about yourself and to explore other places if, if you want to, but if you, if you don't take the map, like, you're not going to be worse off because you won't know, you, you know? Yeah. And I think about the way we think about neurosis and like the, what actually is neurosis, you know, like hmm. the Enneagram can help you learn about yourself, but it's only teaching you by you learning about who you're not, you know? Interesting. If, you know, hmm. like I think about this map and it's not actually about like, here's where you are or here's who you are. It's like, here's where you think you are basically, mm-hmm. you know, neurosis is the revelation of like, this is what I perceive to be real or true but it's actually not the depth of who I am. It's not the depth of my life. It's not the depth of my existence, my my purpose, you know? Yeah. And I think you were talking about like, it doesn't necessarily better or worsen your life. I would honestly argue that. I mm. think it does better your life. Um, and not even just your life, but like ideally, if you're using it for a good purpose, like- In healthy ways. In healthy ways, like that's kind of vague, but we did an episode on that before. You can go <laughs> yeah. back and listen to that. Um, but if you're using it for a good purpose, I think one of the most impactful parts of the Enneagram is that it, going back to this map metaphor, it can decrease the xenophobia that you might be inclined to have, you know? Can you explain? Like, like let's say your metaphorical village that you were talking about is um, the eighth point on the Enneagram, yeah, you know? Yeah. You'll see people on, on the fourth point and be like, what is that? Like, <laughs> why are they so ugly? Why, mm. why do they make no sense to me, you mm-hmm. know? So my hope is that, like, people don't just learn about the Enneagram and they're like, what's my type? And then throw it away. Like, the Enneagram is valuable because it's a system. And it's, it's a map that covers online points. Yeah. And it's not something you can just be like, oh, I'm this type and I don't care about anything else. Like if you're using it holistically, it's going to be way more helpful and ideally make you more compassionate and mm-hmm. kind. You connect more. You, we connect to each other more than we think we do. That's so true. All right. Uh, another question that we got a couple of times was generically, are you born with your Enneagram type? This is a this is a great question. I love this question. Um, the answer is I don't know. Um, the answer is I can't tell you. <laughs> I like that every question is like mm, 
don't know, but Again, here's my unadulterated opinion. <laughs> exactly. That's so. That's just like the best we can do. I hate yeah. to say it, but like you can look up your own research if you want. What I believe is that we are born with predispositions towards certain neurotic cycles that feel natural or normal. Um, I think traumatic events can alter that course. Mm-hmm. Um, I think traumatic events um, can change things pretty significantly. What I've observed is is this is just my experience so take this with a lot of grains of salt i personally believe that there is a nature component that's significant but the nurture component i think is more significant well that goes along with object relations as well yeah that's true there's this idea of like a wound that we internalize and whether it's a metaphorical wound or like a singular moment or something that happens over time Mm. there are these general senses of oh this wasn't sufficient or um i wasn't sufficient whatever it might be um and that that affects the way we craft a way of living and being. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think it's something that could be debated. Yeah. I would argue that you are not born with a type. I think that honestly, I've heard this before. I've heard this debated as well, but I think type is a reaction to instinct. I was going to ask you because we've talked about before that instinct is even first before, before type. Well, because instinct is so basic, you know, we learn about self-pressed social sexual and like, what that means and and how we have a dominant instinct and a secondary and a repressed instinct. I think the neurosis that we form that creates type is a response to instinct. So a response to it not working or well, our response to trying to cope with meeting that need. Uh So let's pretend Mm. someone's social dominant, you know, like it might be most natural for them to take care of the social instinct by forming the ninth neurosis you know, mm-hmm. or forming the second rosis. But you could also consider, like, think about something that makes a little bit less sense. Like, maybe someone who's dominant in the social instinct gets those social needs met through the eighth neurosis. And it's going to be a lot more antisocial behavior, but that's still a pattern that's learned. So I think, in my opinion, I think there are nature, biological predispositions, um, and then events in our childhoods mm-hmm. change the course of what's really going on. Um, and I think type is altered by that um, and cemented at varying ages, but probably like around 11, 12, 13. That's, that's what I think. Um, you could fight me on that and I could be convinced, honestly. (laughs) Um, I also think that, I don't know if this is like super contradictory to what we just said, but I think, I personally think that everyone is born with a neurosis. It's just not formed yet. Like, I think there's a difference between, are you born with a type and are you born with a neurosis of like, I think we all are going to form some sort of unhealthy pattern to cope. It's just, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a type yet. You know, it doesn't. I don't understand what you're saying at all. So like, are we like, you're saying someone is born with the seventh neurosis? No, I'm saying that like neurosis generally, like everyone is, is going to form a neurosis. Everyone's going to form some sort of coping pattern. Oh yeah. Um, we just, it just hasn't been formed into one of the types yet. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I think about childhood and think about the events that we try and step through and navigate. Um, and honestly, I think there's a lot of testing, like trial and error, that mm. goes ha- like goes on in our childhood, where we try a certain neurotic cycle and like it either works for us enough for us to think that yeah. it's the answer or yeah. it doesn't. You know, um, I I would bet that there are things that we are predisposed to, and then there are certain avenues that feel more comfortable. And over time, one of them is the most preferred because it's we feel probably intrinsically without realizing it that it's the least problematic for our existence that is Mm. it's the easiest way to exist 
which kind of goes back to the ninth neurosis. You think about like the ninth neurosis is focused on ease. And it like, remember the nine, the crown of the Enneagram represents all the types. Yeah, it's kind of the theme. Yeah, the theme is like, we're all trying to cope and have an easy life. You know, it's just like, sometimes we think that the sixth neurosis is the way to do that or the third, you know, like Mm. it, it could be anything. Yeah, that's my two cents. Wow. I really like that, actually, a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Speaking of nines, there was another thing that we got a lot of questions about. Um, a couple people asked, like, how do you tell a nine from a two? If you haven't listened to our mistyping episodes yet, you should go back and, and do that. They were very recent. Um, <laughs> like last time. <laughs> like last time. Um, and they're very helpful, in my opinion. Um, and we'll probably do more later on where we talk about the certain signifiers that help you identify, like, uh, if you're not doing this or you don't see this pattern, like, right. you're definitely not this type or you definitely could be this type, um, that kind of stuff. We'll do more on that later. But um, there were a lot of mistyping questions. So we did episodes already comparing um, how to tell apart, for example, a two and a nine. And yeah. that's pretty thoroughly discussed. So you should go back and listen to that if you're interested. Um, but we are not going to cover that right now. Sorry to say. But you were heard. Yeah, you and were heard. We did answer. We answered very thoroughly. <laughs> Just honestly too thoroughly. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's go on to the next one, which is, uh, I really like this wording, so I kept it exactly the way it was. Convince me, period. Why should I believe the Enneagram? I feel like we kind of answered this already. Yeah. You know, just like the idea of like, I am not going to convince you. You know, you're mm. asking me to prove the Enneagram to you. Um, and I'm going to say, disprove it. You know, like, right. It, my response would be, if you would like me to tell you scientifically, like, here are the facts. Here's the research. Mm. Here's why it matters. Um, that's not the point of the Enneagram. Y- you missed the point. So mm. what I would say is, if you can disprove it, great. Disprove it. Um, but the the relevance of the Enneagram is apparent in my life. And I think apparent in the lives of most people who are listening. So, and I think it, it kind of speaks for itself. You know, yeah. you can learn it and, and understand it and garner some wisdom from it. Or you cannot. And we cannot dictate whether or not you choose to do that. So convince you, sorry. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Malia just gave the most like devastated face. It was like, convince you, pout. <laughs> <laughs> Cannot do so. Uh-huh. Um, but the next question is, can the Enneagram be applied more broadly, not just to individuals, but trends we see in a friend group, community, or nation? This is so interesting. This is a great question. I love this question. I think the answer is yes, in my opinion. Mm. Because, again, it goes back to this universal law. I think that the Enneagram manifests itself all around the world um, in cultures, but also just in concepts. Like, we see it show up in the way we do business, in the way we um, form traditions in our, like, in American nation. You know, I've heard people talk about uh, the United States as a three country. That's something that's Mm. said very commonly um, by a lot of Enneagram teachers that, like, you see this motivated, I got to perform, I got to be really driven and i gotta work a really self-prez hard self-prez three yeah exactly <laughs> collect all is, of the things is a self-prez three yeah, mm. but yeah you could argue that i mean like the united states is a self-prez three mm-hmm. like it's up to you but to be honest i do see trends um you can even see instinctual trends i think like looking at more eastern countries with communal trends where people are focused on family and yeah. your Community. identity goes yeah. to either assist or dishonor your family you know there's, there are trends with that and i think that speaks to um an emphasis on the social instinct, even. You can mm. see the social instinct manifest more vividly, I think, in non-individualistic co- cultures. And, of course, that doesn't mean that no one in the United States is a social type. I think there are plenty of social types. It's just if it's going to manifest, it's probably going to be less group-minded and more individually minded. Mm. And, of course, the social instinct can be individually minded. Um, but it's 
you think about the United States and it's a colder nation. You know, it's like it's more cutthroat than yeah. other nations might be as far as like that's also coming from two Americans here. You know, yeah. like Malia's lived abroad, so she can comment on this more than I could. Well, I think I think what you learn, I, I mean, and I'm very humbled by my limited experience. Um but I think what you learn when you go abroad is that how little you really know. And so we can't mm. really speak that much to other cultures that we don't have that expansive knowledge on. Um, but I think it is true of like what we were saying earlier. If the Enneagram reveals things about humanity, like humanity's everywhere. And it can do so on an individual level, like me and Jack, or it can do so on a cultural level and in a grander scheme of like, like you were saying, like America being a self-prized three. I think it's interesting and humbling to be thinking about that as an American is when when we're trying to communicate with people from different cultures, that it's you can't just judge based on their culture, like what they are. And you can't mm. kind of enter in a conversation with them with these preconceived American notions of like, recognize that we live in a self-pressed three world. And um, that kind of goes along with our next question, which was how does culture change uh, Enneagram types and the way that they're seen, the way that they're um, played out. Um, and, and as I was thinking about this question, I actually thought of uh, like a, an analogy, I guess it would be or an example of that. Well, we were talking about um, some upcoming episodes where we talk about like fictional characters and we were looking at, yeah, um, some people from the Hunger Games when this came up and you were like, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because if you look at Effie Trinket, I mean, I don't know if how many of y'all are like really diehard Hunger Games fans. But if you look at Effie, like it's really easy to look at her and be like, wow, she's such a three, right? Because of her showiness, because of the way that she's like really overly dressed up. She's so overtly vain. Like oh, her yeah. character looks looks so vain. Yeah. And then we were talking about that and we were like, I was like, oh my gosh, she, she's got to be a three, right? And, and Jack was like, actually, I think she's probably a two. And I was like, what? You know, because the culture of the capital is very three-ish. It's very, but like even more so than America. It, it's like completely about this vanity of, of dressing over the top and over, overdone makeup and, and this showiness. But, but really, it's not about behavior. It's not about the way that she looks like, like that physically. Like speak to her. Exactly. Drive. But when we started talking more about um, her motivations. Her character structure. Yeah. Right. It's, well, can you talk on that? Well, I think it's just like kind of what you were saying, even thinking about what we think of as three-ishness is shaped by our American culture. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like maybe to them, it's not even a three-ish culture. You know, I, I think that would be hard to argue, but like at the same point, like if everyone is dressing that way, they might not think of it as vain. You know? Right. Like, where if you've seen like the, the purple wigs and like the huge makeup, like mm -hmm. it, it's kind of ridiculous. And to us, it's like, whoa, that, that doesn't make any sense, but it's cultural and it's contextual. Mm -hmm. um, but like you were saying about Effie, like you can get distracted by the external markings and seeing like, oh, this is exactly what's going on. She must be a three. But I mean, you look at her character structure and she's obsessed with um, being wanted and having a role, having a place and having yeah. something to offer, you know? And you realize quickly like, oh, it's not actually about putting herself in the spotlight. It's about putting others in the spotlight and getting in return, you know? Yeah. So it's actually a really humbling experience to think through this question because you recognize just how easy it is to judge a book by, by its cover, um, especially with the Enneagram. And um, part of this question has to do with social expectations. Mm -hmm. And yeah. of course that's, 
has to do with the social instinct and like the expectations that the tribe has for you. But we see in different cultures, different sets of social expectations, which Mm -hmm. can make the different types manifest differently. So like um, a seven in America can look very easily on their own because they seek out this freedom, right? They're, they're going off and getting what they want and it's easier to do that. It might be harder to tell a seven in a more Eastern culture because mm. you can't just go off and, and be this individual and do whatever you want. Like you have to answer to a, a larger group. I guess you could, but the cost would be higher, you know? Yeah. That's like, I think that's really a good way to think of it. Like, the cost changes depending on where you are. Um, also, I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. how would you, like, if you could compare it to, like, the self-pres through thing we were talking about with the United States, like, how would you talk about Bosnia as a place you've lived? Yeah. Like, what type structure do you see in that? Country? Interesting. Yeah, because Bosnia is, like, an Eastern European co- country, so it has this flavor of the Europe, Europe plus this Eastern drive, um, and it's still honor shame culture, but it has um, it also has this like newer developed kind of European feel to it. I'm gonna say that take whatever I'm gonna say with a lot of a lot of salt, <laughs> like as we are doing with all of these many grains, um, many many grains, because I have lived there very like I I got to experience it in very limited portions, and so I I don't want to speak on something that's that's that someone with greater experience would disagree with. But I would actually say it's an eight that there's a huge barrier kind of culture of Interesting. I'm yeah. going to be portrayed. I need to put up these defenses. I mean, um, Bosnia was a, a little history lesson. If you don't know, Bosnia used to be a part of Yugoslavia and it went through a giant war in the nineties. And a lot of the culture currently still feels that wound of the war That's and so interesting. there's I wonder how that changed that well things. i mean yeah. oh yeah i mean think about the unified country breaking up and then bosnia was literally left to be fought like oh, it's, it's like crazy but you can imagine the betrayal that that occurs out of that and this feeling of like i have to put every barrier up and there's even this like steeliness in hmm. in the veins of bosnians that are like we survived. Yeah. And like Whoa, that's this, interesting. this pride um, that is warranted because a lot of them really went through, I mean, all of them went through horrible t- like trauma. Um, but there's this kind of like, yeah, we did. And now it's over and we don't talk about it. You know, it's like, we're like, yeah. Mm, um, so interesting. And, and again, I'm saying this all from a, from a distant American perspective, but I, I would say that that's much, much more different than um than another culture uh, i've lived in in england i was gonna ask where in in london like i would say london is low-key a four because think about their elitism and they're like we used to be the brits you know it's like this like my ideal is in the past of of like king george and like this Mm -hmm. ideal uh, idealizing um their own uniqueness and that's i think that's why they're a little bit spiteful towards america because they're like you stole our uniqueness and so we're gonna be like oh because angry like <laughs> the ultimate individualist culture and they're exactly. like how dare you exactly yeah. like we gave you everything you know that's so funny um and maybe they're just like really vengeful too you know the like line to two there at least you yeah know? oh for sure um 
Oh, I didn't even think about that. That's really like fascinating. Mother culture. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. But seriously, um, but it's, I mean, it's incredibly different than, than, uh, than America. I mean, I would think about America as a self-pres, as a self-pres three or seven. I could, I could, you could argue that it's a self-pres seven as well. Um, gluttony. <laughs> the gluttony is the real. obesity <laughs> rates. They're skyrocketing still. I, but like. Think about the the major difference between that and a and a culture that has been war torn, yeah, or a culture true. that used to, um, that really that really birthed this. Uh, I, I think about America almost like the youngest sibling that like got all the perks and like didn't have to go through all the crap, you know. And it's like still overly spontaneous and irresponsible. Exactly, and, like, exactly. And so I can see you know, like England as being kind of this. Um, and again, this is completely biased, but the England being this kind of like spiteful oldest sibling who's like, I fought for you. That's so intriguing. <laughs> I, I, I paved the way and you just like casually walked, you know, down the road. Um, that sounds sort of one ish. Like, mm. like I played by the rules and you didn't. And that's so like in that context, at least it seems like yeah. I did it the right way. I mean, think about the, the Americans that left, like think about the, the English people who left and became America. They were like, yeah. well, screw you. I'm going to go do my own thing. <laughs> you know, I'm going to literally, like, go and, and then take over this whole country. Yeah, like, and, and the state was like, uh, no, you're not. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's so about. fascinating um, to think about the differences. Um, and I, I, again, want to state, like, this is all my, my biased opinion and my limited experiences. But it is really interesting to be thinking about the differences and how they contrast and conflict yeah that's so cool well i think we're done right yeah i mean that was that was all the questions um well I, again i hate to say it there were a couple other questions but uh, like the mistyping ones there were a couple other things like yeah. about specific types uh we're not gonna have time to answer today but we do answer a lot of them in our other episodes so yeah oh this yeah this is our shameless plug if you haven't heard the other episodes get back there do your homework i hope it's helpful and so if you're looking to ask more questions or engage with more content, whatever, you can find us on Instagram at notmytypeenneagram. Uh, that same handle at gmail.com is our email if you want to send us more questions. We did get uh, some thorough questions in oh, yes. email format that we answered tonight. Um, Shout out to you. You know who you are. <laughs> you know who you are. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. If you guys want to follow us on Spotify too, then mm-hmm. do us a favor. Um, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts, all that jazz. And look out for our upcoming episodes. The Effie uh, little bit was um, was just a flavor of what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're about to do a whole bunch of, like, obviously not all at once because that would be overwhelming for everyone oh, involved. Yes. But we're going to unpack. We're going to do 19 hours straight <laughs> in-depth scene analysis of Harry Potter. <laughs> well, actually, Harry Potter is the next one on the docket because people did request that. That so is true. If you are looking out for something a little, like, hearted and more just, like, conceptual and fictional mm-hmm. we're going to be doing an episode where we assess uh, harry potter characters in the line of the enneagram that's coming out really soon so so stick around thanks for listening guys all right bye and see ya so you can find us on not my type enneagram at instagram that's our handle <laughs> that's our handle why we're do we always struggle to, to say this part it's like impossible to say <laughs> it's literally the easiest and the most like robotic we're like part of it what do i say <laughs> what like at not on. my enneagram podcast <laughs> Okay, let's try that again.